Hello, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a look at popular songs of the past and dives into their history, their meaning, or any other things that might be of interest surrounding those songs. My name is Claude Call, so I've got that going for me, which is nice. If you want to get in touch with me, probably the best way is to find me on Twitter, at HowGoodItIsPod, or you can leave a comment on the website, HowGoodItIs.com, where you can find some additional trivia, follow-ups, and other stuff that I found interesting. And don't forget to check out and follow the show's Facebook page, which really seems to be where the action is lately. It's over at Facebook.com slash HowGoodItIsPod. One of the most polarizing songs of the 1960s, I think, has to be the song MacArthur Park, written by Jimmy Webb and initially made famous by actor Richard Harris. Some people think it evokes beautiful imagery. Others think it's just so much nonsense. Most people agree that Richard Harris is no rock star, and despite his recent success with Camelot, he really had no business recording this tune. But it did go to number two on the U.S. charts and number four on the U.K. singles charts, so clearly there was some appeal to it, even if a 1993 survey of Dave Barry's readers voted it the worst song of all time. In fact, when I previewed this episode on Facebook this week, one listener actually took the time to tell me that she was going to skip this episode because she just couldn't take even short clips of the song. So we've got melting cake, we've got old men playing checkers, striped pants as he sings, and what the hell is he singing about anyway? Well, let's find out together, shall we? To start with, it wasn't really intended to be sung by a single person. Jimmy Webb spent time in the summer and fall of 1967 writing this song and others as the last part of a cantata. For those of you who don't know, and don't feel bad, I had to look it up too, a cantata is a vocal composition with musical accompaniment, which is written in several movements and usually involves a choir. He wrote it with that level of structure largely as part of a challenge by producer Bones Howe, who challenged Webb to write and compose a classically structured song with several movements that could be played on the radio. Although it's not spelled out anywhere on the album, the session notes describe four distinctly named segments. First there's this, it's a mid-tempo introduction and the opening section called In the Park, which is built around the piano and the harpsichord and it's got the horns and the orchestra added in. This arrangement accompanies the song's main verses and the choruses. Next you get a slow tempo and a quiet section following, and it's titled After the Loves of My Life. Third, you get the up-tempo instrumental section called Allegro, which is a little heavier on the drums and general percussion. It's punctuated by all those horn riffs, and it builds up to a nice orchestral climax. Finally, you get this, the mid-tempo reprise of the first section, concluding with the final choruses and the climax. 
put them all together and they spell cantata. Bones Howe, who you'll recall got this ball rolling, was the producer for the association, and that's how the song was offered to them first. So how did Richard Harris get a hold of it? Well, as it turned out, Webb originally hooked up with Harris before he was turned down by the association. Webb had been hired to provide some uh, musical atmosphere at a fundraiser in East Los Angeles. Specifically, he was to play the piano during the event. During the evening, as Webb puts it, Harris walked up to him and suggested that he'd like to release a record. At the time, Webb didn't take it seriously, but sometime later, he got a telegram from Harris inviting him to come to London and make a record. So... Webb flew across the pond and met with Harris, where he played several songs he'd worked on, but none of them appeared to be appropriate for Harris's pop debut. Finally, Webb broke out MacArthur Park, and Harris chose it for the album and for his pop debut single. The song was recorded in Hollywood shortly before Christmas 1967, and musicians included Hal Blaine on drums, Larry Nectel on keyboards, and Tommy Tedesco on guitar, among others. That's right, Jimmy Webb brought in the Wrecking Crew to record on this track. Webb himself played the harpsichord that you hear through the song. So how did a song with such a great musical pedigree wind up so reviled? And what was Harris singing about anyway? I have a theory about this. Remember that Webb originally wrote the song specifically for the association and they turned it down. Now, the association, you know, despite having a reputation for being a sunshine pop kind of group, they were known for some pretty tight harmonies and that was made possible because there were so many members. And at the time they turned down MacArthur Park, there were six of them in the group. Now, when you've got a song designed for six singers and you change that arrangement to accommodate one guy, well, the quality is just naturally going to suffer. And while the musical Camelot was an unqualified success, I'm pretty sure that most of the people who went to the movie and or bought the soundtrack album didn't necessarily do it because of Richard Harris's level of singing talent. Rather, they bought it despite Richard Harris's level of talent. Plus, Harris wasn't so much singing the song as he was reading the lyrics with a ton of drama and maybe a little bit of a nod toward the melody. So I'd argue that without the contributions provided by Webb and the Wrecking Crew, this track could have been worse, a whole lot worse. So finally, what in God's name was he singing about? Okay, well, it's actually a little bit more straightforward than you think. In an interview he did a couple of years ago, Jimmy Webb spelled out the story behind the song. In the early 1960s, Webb had a relationship with a young lady named Susie Horton, who liked him well enough, but it was also clear at the time that the relationship was rather one-sided meaning that he was way into her more than she was into him. They broke up and she moved away to the Lake Tahoe area to become a dancer in the casino showrooms. While she was there, she met and married her first husband. Word got back to Webb and he wrote a song about it. No, it wasn't MacArthur Park. Girl, I heard you're getting married Heard you're getting married This time you're really there you go. This is uh, The Worst That Could Happen by Johnny Maestro and the Brooklyn Bridge. As it happened, that marriage was short-lived, and uh, Horton moved back to the L.A. area and reconnected with Webb. During this period of being reunited, they spent a lot of time having lunch together and feeding the ducks together and maybe riding the paddle boats together, all in a park across the street from where she worked. Care to hazard a guess as to the name of that park? Unfortunately, the story takes a little bit of a weird turn because the song is clearly about a love affair gone wrong, and Webb and Horton did, in fact, break up again. Now, while they did remain lifelong friends, and 
still are lifelong friends, I should mention. They're both still alive. Horton did get married again, but Webb wasn't invited to the wedding. Worse yet, the wedding was going to be held in an open-air ceremony in MacArthur Park. Webb went to the park on the day of the wedding, but he didn't want to be seen, so he hid in a nearby gardener's shed, and he watched the ceremony from there. During the proceedings, it began to pour down rain, and the rain on the shed's window made it look as though the wedding cake was melting. Webb says that all the elements of the song, the old men playing checkers, the yellow dress, and so on, were related to either things that actually happened in the park or were thinly disguised metaphors for his relationship with Horton and the subsequent heartbreak. So, in fact, the lyrics are a little bit more straightforward than you suspect. For what it's worth, Jimmy Webb also wrote the song By the Time I Get to Phoenix about the same event, but I guess Glenn Campbell isn't quite as polarizing of a performer. By the time I get to Phoenix She'll be rising and by the way, if you're keeping count, that's three songs about Susie Horton that have uh, gone to the top of the charts here. On her so the song was released in April of 1968, and ABC Dunhill Records was clearly hedging the bet a little bit because they didn't initially press a lot of copies of the 45. In fact, they only did a few copies for the larger radio stations to consider for airplay. Fortunately for that label, one of them was WABC AM, which had the advantage of being located in New York City, plus their signal was a 50,000-watt flamethrower, especially at night. Because AM radio travels further at night, WABC signal could be heard over a significant part of the country, and that gives a lot of extra exposure to a song. Now, when I was in college, WABC's program director, Rick Sklar, wrote a book about that station's heyday called Rockin' America, How the All-Hit Radio Stations Took Over. And the book opens with a description of the weekly meetings where several employees of the station decide what songs are going to be added to the playlist. And in the book, he writes, Our first April WABC weekly music meeting began like many others. Disc jockeys Ron Lundy and Dan Ingram, a production assistant, our music librarian, my secretary, and I gathered in my office. On this particular day, we had an ABC dub under consideration. I glanced at the handwritten label. The reason why ABC had been afraid to start pressing the discs in quantity was obvious. At a time when most records ran two and a half or three minutes, this daring effort ran seven minutes. I put MacArthur Park on the turntable queued it up, and hit the start button. We sat back and listened. The record was not only long, it was different. The lyrics were full of poetic imagery. The composition was broken into contrasting movements like a miniature symphony. A second melody line was introduced for a lengthy instrumental portion of the record. As it played, a silence fell over the meeting. Because the door was open, secretaries passing by stopped, slipped into the room, and sat down on the floor entranced. By the end of the song, there were half a dozen extra people at the music meeting. No one wanted to leave. They wanted to hear it again. I played the song once more. Some of the young women began to sing along with it. The music had reached some special place in all of them. I decided to add MacArthur Park to the WABC playlist. After the meeting ended, my telephone lines were jammed with the usual deluge of calls from record companies and music publishers eager for the results of our deliberations. When I told ABC's local promotion director, Mickey Wallach, the news, he panicked. 
He asked that we give him at least a week to get the record out to the stores on a rush basis, and I agreed. The following Tuesday, MacArthur Park was played on WABC. Now, because Rick Sklar was trying to get publicity for the book, he actually consented to do an interview with me for my college's radio station, and I specifically asked him about this story and if there was a conflict of interest created by WABC, the radio station, which is ABC-owned and operated, playing a record from the ABC Dunhill label. Sklar told me that the music meetings were held label blind, that he might know the label that a record was on, but nobody else in the room did, and nobody else could see the record labels to find out either the label or the artist. This wasn't long after the Paola scandal, so they were pretty careful about such things at the time. The book is out of print nowadays, but you can still get it pretty cheaply through eBay or Amazon. Oh, here's a fun story. Shortly after the record came out and started climbing the charts, a 19-year-old man named Paul Ryan was at a party and heard MacArthur Park. According to his twin brother Barry, the song inspired him to become a songwriter. He went home, locked himself away for a couple of days, and composed this track called Eloise, which was recorded by Barry and clearly inspired by MacArthur Park. I hope she goes. The song runs a little over five minutes and it has a lot of strong orchestration, some extra dramatic vocals, and a brief slow interlude in the middle. It sold three million copies worldwide and reached number two in the UK singles chart as published by Record Retailer, but it hit number one in the NME and the Melody Maker charts. It topped the chart in 17 countries, but it barely cracked the Hot 100 in the US, topping out at number 86. As far as MacArthur Park, there have, of course, been a couple of covers done, including one in 1993 by jazz great Maynard Ferguson. But probably the best-known version is the one by Donna Summer, who cut a disco version in 1977 and scored her first number one hit. Oh, and if you're wondering whatever happened to Susie Horton, the girl whose wedding inspired the whole thing, well, in 1993, she got married again to a fellow named Bobby Ronstadt. Bobby is Linda Ronstadt's cousin, and so far as I know, they're still living happily ever after. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod and, of course, check out and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Ooh, you could also check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Next time, we're going to discover how good it is to be, as the saying goes, six feet from stardom. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you then. Yeah.